So Matthew chapter 11. And in a slight change from the sheet, we're actually going to read from verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. And we'll read from Matthew 11, verse 18. For John came, that's John the Baptist, for John came neither eating or drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we want to hear your call to come to you and to do so joyfully, uh, to do so obediently, uh, to do so uh, ready to serve however you may ask. And so we pray now that as we hear you speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit, uh, that you would give us receptive hearts and minds that would hear your call hear your voice and know that it is the voice of the lord our god bless us we pray through the power of your spirit we ask amen christianity is a, is a gift that's what distinguishes the christian message the christian gospel from really any other not just religion but any other worldview, any other understanding uh, of life. Uh, the Bible's message, really from Genesis through to Revelation, is that God is so generous and so kind that he's willing to give us all that we need. If you've been around churches for a while, if you're a Christian, uh, I suspect you know that already. So we hear from Jesus that forgiveness is a gift. Yes, we've fallen short of how we should have lived, but he dies in our place and says forgiveness is free. We know that eternal life is a gift. We don't have to pay for it with all our good deeds. We don't have to buy it with saying enough prayers or, or doing enough work for God. No, it is free. It is a gift. In other words, Christianity is a religion of grace, 
not works. God does everything to rescue us. And we don't have to contribute anything. That's why we often talk about the Christian message being gospel. It just means good news. But what I think God is saying to us in this passage this morning is that even knowing God is a gift. Even knowing God is a gift. And that is, how might we say it? That is, that is, that is in some ways harder to accept than it might sound. Okay, so I want to dig into these words of the Lord Jesus and explore how knowing God is a gift, and in particular how it's both a dangerous gift and a delightful gift. Knowing God brings dangers, but it also brings great delight. So let's jump in and see what the Lord has to say. We're going to start in the middle of the passage. Verse 25 through 27 are a prayer of Jesus. In the first section, verses 20 to 24, Jesus is preaching. He's speaking to the world around. And in verses 28 through to 30, the last section, again, he's preaching, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. But in the middle, do you see, he turns and speaks upwards to God. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So verses 25 through 27 are a prayer in the middle of two mini sermons, you might say. They're, they're the meat in the sandwich. And we look at the, the filling first before we look at the two uh, surrounding sermons. And, and if you want to summarise that prayer, Jesus is, is praying and saying to God uh, that the only way we can know him is if he allows us to. The only way you can know God is if he lets you know him. Let's pick apart the steps Verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Son, sorry, and no one knows the Father except the Son. We're diving into the depths of the Trinity. The Son is Jesus, the Father is the Father. And Jesus is essentially saying, if you like, in step one of his argument, that only God knows God. Now, lots of people know about God, but the word know there, when Jesus says only the Father knows the Son and only the Son knows the Father, it's, it's a relational word. It, it's sort of like when people say, I've only got to know my wife since we got married. Often married couples say that. You know, we didn't really know each other before we were married. They don't, don't mean they never met until you know, they were at the altar. They just mean that, that although they knew about their spouse. They knew them reasonably. They didn't have that intimate knowledge until they were married. So of course we meet people in the Old Testament who, who, who are described as knowing God. Christians actually are described as knowing God too. But, but it, at the deepest level, really understanding the depths of God's being is something that only God knows. Now Jesus doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit here, but, but he's He's speaking of the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in fact, in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians, he will say only the Spirit knows the deep things of God. But for our purposes this morning, the first step in Jesus' argument is only God really knows God. Father knows Son, Son knows Father. And therefore, only God can show you God. 
Uh, twice we're told that the way we know God is by God revealing himself. Look at verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Father reveals. Now, the, these things here, I think, are the, given what's just been spoken about in Matthew's Gospel, is, is, is essentially who Jesus is. Uh, in the passage beforehand, John the Baptist, even John the Baptist, had got a bit unsure. You know, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? And Jesus tied that one up earlier in Matthew 11. But, but now he says, look, Father, only if you reveal, only if you show people, only if you introduce yourselves, yourself can people know uh, who I am and indeed who you are. So the Father reveals, but so does the Son in verse 27. Uh, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Both the Father and the Son have to introduce themselves. Now, children, if you wanted to get to know the Queen, how would it happen? Well, you couldn't just send her a message, could you? You couldn't just walk up to Buckingham Palace and knock on the door and say, I'd like to get to know you. No, because she's the Queen, she has to invite you. And every now and again, some people get an invitation to go to a garden party at Buckingham Palace or come and meet the Queen, and then you get to meet her. But she has to start it. Jesus is saying it's like that with God. That means, well, that means a couple of things. That means that, that even knowing God and understanding the gospel, okay, which is the, the, the core Christian message, even knowing God and understanding the gospel happens by grace alone. See Jesus saying that, verse 26? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Knowing God isn't our right. We don't all have just, it's built into ourselves, the right to know God. Why is that? Well, because, well, actually, because we've all turned away from him. It's not that God randomly chooses some people he likes and some he doesn't and is unfairly hiding from some, no. Uh, we've just read in verses 18 uh, and 19 of, of the way that the people of Jesus' generation reacted to him. You know, when John the Baptist, the prophet who spoke about Jesus, turned up, people said, oh, he's weird. You know, he eats weird food. He's too holy. He's got a demon. He doesn't eat and drink like us. So, no, no, what he says can't be true. He's too holy, too strict, too severe. Jesus turns up, eating and drinking, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and they say, well, he can't be God. He's not holy enough. The people won't repent with John, and they won't rejoice with Jesus. Essentially, says Jesus, they're never happy. And although he's speaking about that generation, it's true of all of us. Naturally, we will just dismiss God because of the corruption in our hearts. And that's why knowing God is a gift. He has to reintroduce himself, as it were. That's why elsewhere in the Bible, uh, Paul will say that faith, another way of saying knowing God, faith is a gift of God. In Ephesians 2, he'll say to the Philippians, it was, it was granted to you, you were allowed, not just to know Jesus, but to suffer for him. Uh, even knowing God is a gift. And therefore, and this is where I think this, this idea of Christianity being a gift just gets a little bit, well, it can get our heckles up a little bit. 
We therefore mustn't think that God treats every single human being exactly the same. Does that surprise us? God doesn't treat every human being exactly the same. But if it does surprise us and shock us, we've got to see that it's it's Jesus' words, not mine. Look at verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. God has treated one group, the wise, one way, and another group, the little children, another way. He's hidden himself from the wise and revealed himself to little children. What's going on? Well, the wise here aren't just clever people, and the children aren't under tens, as if, you know, once you're 12, you can't know God anymore. They're they're pictures. The wise are those who rely on themselves. The wise are those who who say, look, if I'm going to believe in God, then I set the terms. I will work out whether the Christian message is true or not. I'm not trusting some religious book. The, The wise are those who say, well, I'll believe God in you once you end world suffering. I'll believe in you once you make yourself clearer. I'll believe in you once you you send the kind of experience I think you ought to give me if I were to trust in you. Essentially, the wise are those who say, look, I'm going to trust in myself and my own way of discovering God. Whereas the children here are those who are willing to just, well, humbly receive God's revelation the way he brings it. Someone told me uh, just last week, in fact, about a, a maze in one of these country houses. Children, have you ever been in a labyrinth? You know, these mazes, they grow the hedges up and you've got to find your way in and then out again. And the, the special thing about this maze was that at one point, once you'd found the middle and were trying to find your way out again, there was a sign. And the sign said, exit for all those who are elderly and disabled. But the thing is, that was the only exit. And the point was, you would never get out of the labyrinth until you're willing to say, do you know what? I need help. I can't do it on my own. And so the prouder people were, the longer they were stuck going round and round, until eventually they gave up and said, look, I need help. Okay, I'm not strong and able to work this out for myself. That's kind of the idea here. It's not that God, well, it's not that God is unjust. That the reason we don't know God in the first place is that we all put our hands over our face and, and, and don't want to see him. We don't find God for the same reason that a burglar doesn't find the police. He doesn't want to be found. But, but once we've all turned away and put our hands over our eyes, God doesn't take the hand off everyone's face. He doesn't treat everyone completely equally. If we insist on turning away from him and relying on ourselves, well, we won't ever know him. And that's why knowing God is a gift that's why, particularly if you're someone who you'd call yourself a Christian and you know God, you mustn't feel proud about it. We mustn't be so pleased with ourselves. Hey, we're Christians. You know, look at all those other people who aren't. I wonder if we fall into that trap. We think, well, you know, God did the work. God the Father did the work of sending Jesus to die for us. Jesus did the work of dying for us on the cross. And then I did the work of believing, knowing about it, understanding it was true, realizing that it was right. Well, not at all. Jesus is really clear in his prayer that the only way we come to know God is if God reveals himself to us. And therefore, we need to be tremendously grateful. Knowing God is a gift. If you know him, rejoice in it. 
be glad for it. It's the most amazing gift he could have given. Now, notice it's, it's a prayer. This is not Jesus preaching to the world around. And I'm, I'm, I'm very aware, and I hope it's the case, in fact, that as we gather week by week, then I hope many people here will, will be unsure about the, the Christian faith, sceptical. And so you'd be forgiven for thinking at this point, well, that's great. I don't think I believe this. Now you're telling me that it's because God hasn't revealed himself to me. Well, let me take a step back. I'm not saying that it's all his fault. I'm not saying that that God simply won't have you. That's why Jesus goes straight from this prayer to this invitation, verse 28. Come to me, all who are labour. If you're willing to come, he will have you. Now, I I can't explain to you, and frankly, no one in 2,000 years of Christian theology has ever been able to fully explain how it is that God is fully in control of the world and yet we're still responsible for how we act. But they are both true. Jesus is adamant that we only know God by his initiative, but he's also adamant that it's our responsibility to react. We're not robots. That's why he tells the people off in verses 20 through 24 for rejecting him. He doesn't just say, well, God didn't let you know. And it's why he invites everyone to come to him in verse 28 through 30. The, the, the point, uh, I suppose, of Jesus' prayer is not to confuse those who have questions about Jesus, but to comfort those, and indeed humble those, who have come to know him. And it's also, I think, to encourage those who are Christians, who are praying for, hoping that their friends, family, colleagues might come to know him too. You see, in verses 20 through 24, we get a description of a whole bunch of people who rejected Christ. And yet Jesus doesn't despair. He prays. That's meant to be our reaction too. Uh, most of us, many of us, will have friends who, who they, they might like us, but they just think we're nuts for being Christians. How, you know, it's great for you, but how can you really believe that? Well, well, our reaction is not to be, as Christians, it shouldn't be to be sort of superior. Well, you know, if you're just clever enough to read this book. or No, not at all. We should be humbly grateful that God has opened our eyes. And then we turn to pray that God does the same for others. So knowing God is a gift, but it's a dangerous gift. That's the second thing this morning. It's a dangerous gift. Now look at verses 20 through 24. Uh, Jesus is walking through the cities uh, and uh, these places, Bethsaida, Chorazin, are, are the places where he's done most of his ministry. Okay, so most of the miracles you, you, we've heard of, the making... Uh, the lame walk, giving sight to the blind, that they've happened in these towns. And yet they haven't believed. We all say, well, I'd believe if I had more evidence. I don't think that's, that's true. Uh, these are the towns, Bethsaida, Chorazin, uh, and Capernaum, that had the best evidence ever, Jesus in front of them. And yet still they wouldn't believe. So what does Jesus do? Again, I, it's shocking. Verse 20, he denounces them. Now, we, we force ourselves at Christchurch here to, to preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons for doing that is it, it makes you engage with things that otherwise you might just want to just sort of jump around. So this morning, honestly, preparing this, the sermon this week, I'd have been much happier if we just looked at verses 28 to 30. We are going to look at them in a minute. But I'd be much happier if that's all we had to do. You know, the nice invitation of Jesus. But we can't do that if we're going to do justice and let Jesus speak. 
you know, rather than let me be a sort of blockage in between. And what does Jesus do? Shockingly, he denounces some towns. When he says, woe, that's, that's kind of the opposite side of the coin to, to blessing. Children, you might know that sometimes Jesus says, you know, blessed are you. And I, woe means, well, frankly, you're in trouble. Uh, why? Well, verse 21. Uh, the shock is that if, if Jesus had done these miracles in other towns, they would have repented. Uh, Tyre and Sidon weren't cities in Israel. They weren't part of the, the, the kingdom of God in that, those days. Uh, they were cities outside in, in what the, uh, the, the Jews would call Gentile territory. And in fact, Sodom, uh, down in verse 23, is almost the, kind of, almost the archetype or the picture of the worst city you can imagine. There's stories in the Old Testament of the people in Sodom doing terrible things. And Jesus says, even they are better than you to these Israelite cities. Why? Because despite the fact these cities had seen and heard Jesus, they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't turn their lives around and follow him. They wouldn't trust him. Knowing God is dangerous because it brings with it a responsibility to react the responsibility here to repent to turn away from ignoring God and our sin and turn back to following him and so if we were to update this it, it I think the warning comes in our own day to those of us who've perhaps been around church for years we, we've obviously not seen Jesus walking around no one has in our own day and age but we've heard his words read to us in the bible We've heard his words as friends and, and family have tried to explain the, the good news to us. We've heard his words as people have preached at, at churches we've been at. We've perhaps read books trying to explain the, the gospel. We, we've met Jesus in that sense. Well, we now have a responsibility to respond. Jesus might say nowadays, woe to you, Leeds, if, if Mecca had heard what you'd heard. They'd have responded. Woe to you, Christchurch Central. If Pyongyang had had the Bible readings you've had, they would have repented and believed. Uh, woe to you, uh, those who have attended church for years but, but never actually trusted Christ. If Riyadh had heard what you'd have heard, well, they would have repented. Jesus didn't turn up in these cities and instantly start preaching judgment. And that's the whole point in many ways. He started by doing the miracles and healing and teaching and offering the gospel. But they wouldn't, wouldn't respond and they wouldn't respond and they wouldn't respond. So eventually, what does he do? Well, he warns them, verse 22. It'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Or Capernaum, what's going to happen? Do you think you'll be exalted to heaven? Do you think, citizens of Capernaum, you're just on this sort of upward staircase to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades, to death, to the grave, ultimately to, to judgment, to hell. Jesus is willing to be a preacher of judgment as well as salvation. Why? Because he loves us and he wants to warn us of what's to happen or what will happen if we continue to reject him. And again, we... We can't water down his words. We can't take some of what he says. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Well, we like that. And then get the kind of marker pen out and scrub out his preaching on judgment. 
Jesus does warn that one day every single one of us will stand in front of God on judgment day. And it won't be a case of counting up how many nice things we've done or how much money we've earned. Or Rather, it will be, what did you do with Jesus? Did you turn to him and let him pay for your sins to accept the gift? Or did you keep rejecting him? They are tough words, but that doesn't make them untrue. In that sense, Jesus is preaching. It's a bit like if we were in a building and someone ran in and said, there's a fire. Would we say, well, don't, don't try and scare us. That's a horrible thing to say. Well, no, we'd, we'd want to know, are they telling the truth or not? The person screaming, fire, fire, is loving us. He's warning us of what's to come. And actually, that, that picture, I, th- I think, or I hope, is, is helpful for us. Because if someone did run into the building now and said, fire, fire, get out, we, we would respond one way or another, wouldn't we? We'd have to either dismiss them as well, lunatic, or we'd have to run out of the building. I am pretty confident none of us would say, well, I need a little bit more time to think about that, okay, whether, whether the building's on fire or not. I'm pretty sure none of us would say, well, I think it's, the building's on fire for you, but not for me. It doesn't feel to me like the building's on fire. I doubt even many of us would say, look, I just need a bit more evidence before I flee. Jesus is a front foot preacher at times. He says, look, I, I have been clear with you. The responsibility lies with you, not me. I will have you. I will forgive you. But I am warning you, if you turn your back and judgment day arise before you've repented, well, there is no second, third chances. Knowing God is dangerous, so repent. And just thirdly and finally as we finish, knowing God is a delight, so we can find rest. Knowing God is a delight, so we can find rest. These are, the, I guess, the most famous verses, certainly in the passage we read today, possibly in all of Matthew's gospel. Verse 28 through 30, the delight of knowing God that brings rest. If, if in uh, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jesus has been using the stick, now it's the carrot. Okay? Becoming a Christian, following Christ, is not just a case of, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I suppose I better begrudgingly follow him. No, the blessings are immense. And he calls, what he calls to all of us, come to me all. And particularly those who are heavy laden and those who labour. Earlier on, he said it's children who respond, children who come to know God. Here, the, 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 the uh, picture is not that of young people, but of those who are burdened, weighed down. The children, those who are heavy laden, are the same. But, but, but what is it? What does it mean to be labouring? to be heavy laden. We'll look at it this way. The answer to being heavy laden, says Jesus, the answer to being weighed down is to take my yoke on you. A yoke, children, is the thing that you'd put over, it's like a sort of circle, you'd put over a, an oxen or a horse to pull a plow. It's the, the straps that attach you uh, to the plow or, or the cart that the, that the horse is pulling. A yoke is, is a way of life. A yoke yokes you to, to the person who's in charge of you. In Matthew 23, uh, Jesus turns to, to the, the religious teachers of his day, the Pharisees, and he tells them off for putting burdens or yokes on people they can't, they can't bear. So Matthew 23, 
and verse uh, three and four, uh, Jesus says, if the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their own finger. The, the burden or the yoke is a way of life. It's what we're living for. It might be religious, as it is with the Pharisees, so that they created, they didn't just believe the Bible, they created this whole list of other rules you had to keep in order to please God. You, to wait, the way to know God, the way to please God, the way to have eternal life is to keep all these rules. And they were made up rules so that the religious teachers c- could control people. A- and it was just crushing people because they couldn't keep them. But for others of us, we're not religious, but we're still being crushed by life. I think of a friend uh, at university and um, uh, the fire alarm went off one morning. It was about four o'clock in the morning. And we all had to get out the building. The, the week before, in Freshers Week, we'd seen these terrible videos about how the hall had burned down last year. And it, so we all came dashing out of our rooms and assembled on the, on the grass in the middle of the hall. Uh, apart from this girl, Cynthia. And so the warden said, is everyone here from your corridor, from your corridor? And we had to say, well, well Cynthia's not here. Now, they worked out pretty quickly. It wasn't a fire. So we went to look for Cynthia. And eventually Cynthia came out of her room. And she came out of her room looking a million dollars, looking a million dollars. And we said, where have you been? She said, I was getting ready. I didn't want to come out without putting my makeup on, without doing my hair, without getting dressed properly. I can't let anyone see me just as I am. She wasn't free. She was burdened by the need to will look beautiful, burdened by how other people saw her. I think of a guy I was speaking to just last week, uh, not in Leeds, elsewhere, who who dropped out of university and didn't tell his family because the the burden on him was to impress and to succeed. And he just didn't tell his dad in particular that he'd failed. Cynthia was, in one sense, not religious, But in another sense, deeply religious. She bore a yoke. She was trying to live a life that pleased people with her beauty. Uh, This other friend was trying to please his parents with academic success, but it was burdening them down. See, verses 20 through 24, where Jesus is telling us that sin is ultimately going to lead to judgment. So sin is evil, if you like. Rejecting Jesus is dangerous and wrong. Verses 28 to 30 tell us that actually rejecting Jesus is just exhausting. Only if we come to him will we find real rest in this life. There's a famous prayer of of Augustine from the the 5th century, 4th century. He said this, O Lord, you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. If you feel weighed down by life, that it's just not working, Well, ultimately, it's because we've not taken the yoke of Jesus on us. What does he say? Come to me. Verse 28, come to me. If we've we've overheard his prayer and we've started to think, well, maybe God is against us. No, such as come. Come. If you're willing to take the exit that says for the elderly and disabled, if you're willing to say, look, I, I can't find you. I'm not succeeding in life. I need your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace. Jesus says, come. 
in that sense, it's a universal invitation. The only people it doesn't go to is those who won't take it. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's his offer. What's the rest? It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll give you rest and then say, I'll give you a mattress. I'll give you an easy chair, a comfy sofa. I'll send you on holiday. No, come to me, all who labor and have a laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The rest, well, it's, it's not Jesus saying, as I think we sometimes think in this passage, well, everyone else is telling you to impress people, but hey, I'll do everything for you and then you can just chill out and do nothing. No, the rest is learning from Jesus. That's what the yoke is. Being a disciple of Jesus rather than anyone else. And the difference between Jesus and everyone else is his character. I'm gentle and lowly. It's amazing that God describes himself as gentle and lowly. He's gentle. He's full of grace. You will fail as a Christian. Okay, those of you who have been a Christian for more than two weeks know this. You think, oh, I've been, my sin's forgiven. I'm going to, full of the spirit, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then within a week, you've lost your temper at the kids. You forgot to pray four days in a row, five days in a row. Someone said, are you a Christian? You sort of, get quiet. You watch things you shouldn't watch. You know that you fail all the time. But Jesus, as a master, what does he say? Well, you've burned up seven of your 10 chances, only three left. No, he's gentle. God is gentle with us, will forgive us time and time again. And ultimately, of course, our entry into heaven doesn't rest on keeping the commandments. Ultimately, the first thing we do, the first command of Jesus is to believe in him. Believe that he died for our sins and gives us eternal life as a gift. And that's why the the burden of living for Jesus is not a heavy one. The burden of taking on Jesus' way of life is no more of a burden than a a wedding ring is on, on a bride's finger or the wings are on a bird, but both add weight, I suppose you could say. A bird is lighter if it doesn't have wings. A bride is lighter if she's not wearing a wedding ring. But neither would find that they weigh them down. They give joy. The wings let the bird fly. We were created to love one another and love God, to live for him. That's why we find rest, not in just checking out of life, but actually living for the one who made us, who created us. And Jesus has got nothing to gain from you and I coming to follow him. Remember, he's God Almighty. Father and Son were perfectly happy before you or I existed. They don't need us. They're not desperate for our worship because they're so insecure. They want someone to like them. They don't need us. Father, Son and Spirit, perfectly happy. They know one another. They love one another but they want to share that with us. So although the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father, they want to invite us into that relationship. All they have for us is gift. They want to give us the gift of eternal life, give us the gift of knowing him. There's no trick, there's no catch, and ultimately there are no standards to perform. I say, knowing Jesus And knowing God, it is a gift. It is dangerous if we won't repent, but it is an utter delight if we come to him. The rest begins now on earth, but will continue for eternity. Uh, Ultimately, what we're headed towards is eternal rest in heaven. 
where we're never burdened by our sin, never crushed by our guilt, never crippled by a sense of failure, never pushed to our knees because of fears and forebodings, but rather spend eternity joyfully and knowing uh, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who is eternally happy, and the God who wants to share that happiness, that blessedness with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray in your mercy you would open our eyes that we might see the glory of Jesus. Fill us with your Spirit that we might know the Lord our God. And this morning, our Father, we echo that prayer of Augustine. Our hearts are restless. Uh, so let us find our rest in you. For those who are uh, already yours, but weighed down by guilt, Father, might we know the peace that all our sin is paid for and that you want to share eternal life with us. For those who are still looking in from the outside, Father, in your mercy, uh, reveal yourself and the truth of the good news of Christ. And Father, we bless you that you are a God who wants to give, who wants us to be blessed, who wants us to be happy, who wants us to know you. Might we rejoice in that and sing your praise eternally. Amen.